This is exactly right. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This story contains adult content and language. Listener discretion is advised. By this stage, we can see that Knox and his team were extremely anxious, not only that no questions be asked, but that no clues be left. For of course, Burke and Hare had created an extraordinary method of murder. By the end of it, Burke could even stifle somebody with the two fingers of his right hand, with a thumb underneath the chin, drawing in the nostrils very quickly, hair holding onto the legs to prevent any energy being expressed by the intending corpse. William Burke and William Hare were actually becoming really good at murdering people. Everything was very efficient and well-organized. Their methods seemed almost foolproof. There were no marks, no physical evidence, They had tea chests ready for the body removal, a porter waiting to escort them inside, and a professor ready to pay them loads of money for a fresh body. And they had picked their victims well. Most had been tossed to the side by their families and by society. But that last point about how they picked their victims, author Owen Dudley Edwards says, that's where they went wrong. They were, at this stage, they'd made the mistake of stifling and murdering a fairly well-known girl, beautiful girl. Anyhow, when they brought Mary Patterson, as she was called, to Dr. Knox's, uh, one of his assistants thought he had previously met the lady. And in many ways, the murder of that striking woman would be a turning point for William Burke and William Hare. Everything really is quite close here. Yeah, well, Edinburgh's quite small. (laughs) It's quite small. It's quite nice because you invariably bump into people that you know just while you're walking around. That's Janet Philp with the University of Edinburgh. She's been kind enough to show me around the city. It's been a tour filled with macabre facts and stories that parents would tell to warn their children. Birkenhair served as a cautionary tale about what might happen if you misbehave or run away. This is the back of Gibbs Coast. So this is where Burke's brother, Constantine, lived. So he, ironically, worked for the police. So this is where Mary Patterson was murdered. In April of 1828, William Burke's brother and sister-in-law were really nervous. Constantine and Elizabeth wondered if Janet Brown would return looking for her friend Mary. And she did but she was having a hard time finding her way back to Burke's brother's lodge. The drams of whiskey might have worn off, but the haze was still there. Mary had spent the night at the house with William Burke, and now she was missing. But there were people searching for her. Janet and the housekeeper from her boarding house stumbled along the cobblestones. There were hundreds of tenements along High Street, and they all seemed to look exactly alike. They stopped at the spirit store where Burke first seduced Janet. She queried the keeper about the man she and Janet had met that morning. The shopkeeper sneered, saying that she must have been mistaken. 
He told her that the man was married. He would have never been involved with you. Janet stood stoically and listened, controlling her temper so that she could gather more information. Finally, the man behind the counter told her, you'll probably find him at his brother's in Gibbs Close. Now Janet began to remember the route to Constantine's flat. She and the housekeeper made their way to the tenement. Janet felt immense guilt for leaving without her. She was angry and she was worried. She had long ago grown wary of the violent men who often tried to tempt her into spending time with them. She couldn't quite figure out William Burke. Mary might have been just fine. And then Janet would have made a huge fuss for nothing. They ascended the wooden spiral staircase. It had only been about 20 minutes since she had left Mary behind. And Janet stopped to ask someone, have I been here before? The woman studied them and simply said, no, I wouldn't keep company with such people. But the neighbors a few floors above certainly would entertain someone like you. In these taller tenements, it wasn't unusual to find middle-class people residing in the heart of the building, while the poorer folks rented the basement and the top floors. The pair continued their climb up the dilapidated wooden staircase, reached the next floor, and then knocked. The door opened, and there stood a tanned young man with black eyes and a slightly gaunt face with angular features. Standing next to him was a heavy-set woman, about 10 years his elder, with a round face and fierce hazel eyes. She was missing a front tooth. They seemed to be an ideal match. Both looked so wicked. They were William and Margaret Hare. And before Janet could take a second look, Margaret lunged at her. She believed that Janet had come to seduce her husband, just like she had tried to seduce William Burke. Hare corralled his wife, but Janet was startled and suspicious. Her eyes darted to the empty bed. Hare noticed and quickly told her that Mary had left with Burke and would return shortly. She and the housekeeper should stay and have some whiskey. Janet reluctantly agreed in the hopes that her fears weren't true, that the vicious man hadn't hurt her friend. She sent the housekeeper back home to the landlady, Mrs. Lawry, which was a terrible idea. But for many people in Old Town, liquor was too much of a temptation to ignore. Janet lifted the whiskey dram from the table. Burke's wife screamed about Burke's bad behavior with Mary Patterson. As Janet gulped the whiskey, the trio eyed her. Only a knock at the door broke their gaze. Mrs. Lowry's housekeeper was there with orders to gather Janet and escort her back to the lodge. Before they could stop her, Janet was gone, vowing to return once again for her lost friend. And she did return quite often, much to Burke and Hare's dismay. Janet Brown did make extensive hunts for her friend afterwards. She actually accosted Constantine Burke in the street, and he's on record as saying he can't possibly keep track of what his brother's up to. Constantine denied knowing anything about Mary's disappearance. And without his help, Janet was soon forced to concede that she might never know what happened to her missing friend. Later, Mary's landlady actually visited Constantine. He and Elizabeth said Mary moved to Glasgow with a man. So they lied. 
Remember that their descendant, Dan, wanted to know if Constantine had known what his brother was really doing. And did he help cover it up? And I'm trying to figure that out. So now we have some more information. Janet hoped for the best, but she sensed that something or someone horrible had killed Mary Patterson. And that made her feel so uneasy. Dr. Robert Knox's three assistants squirmed just a bit as they stood near her. Mary Patterson was just 18 and certainly the most beautiful corpse they had ever seen. She made them uncomfortable. They had no idea that she had been alive just four hours earlier. The porter, David Patterson, stared at her, almost gawking. He said, The beautiful symmetry and the freshness of the body attracted my attention. It may seem obscene that several men stood around gazing at a naked, dead woman, and it was. It was disgusting. But they were all stunned because she really didn't belong on that table. And this next part is even more morbid. Dr. Knox was transfixed as he gazed at the body of Mary Patterson. He treated it like a prized possession rather than a piece of contraband. Teaching anatomy didn't involve just knowledge— It was a performance for an audience. And Dr. Knox knew that Mary would be the specimen, as horrible as that sounds. The anatomy professor had seen quite literally thousands of cadavers in his career. He needed at least 500 a year just to teach as many classes. But this one seemed to bewitch him. She clearly had never been buried. And were two ruffians from Old Town really that fortunate? Would they really just happen upon an old woman with a handsome body to sell? Probably not. But those were probably the best quality bodies. I mean, surely with Mary Patterson, he must have had a little bit of a he must light, know, light bulb. Mary Patterson was the, was the one who was still warm when she got there. Um, and pristine and young. But he must have known. Absolutely must have known. But maybe not. Maybe Dr. Knox's judgment was so clouded by his own hubris that he wouldn't allow himself to believe that he was an accomplice to murder. But then, Dr. Knox's behavior became very odd. The lab door swung open, and a man walked in with a bundle under his arm. Knox had called his friend, an artist, with an unusual request. Knox then brings in an artist to draw her body, which is a whole new level of weird. The medical students also drew her body, which, again, not the norm. And an artist friend of Dr. Knox uh, proceeded to draw her, and copies of the painting survive. That is weird. So Knox hired an artist to sketch her body, to capture its beauty. And he then preserves her in whiskey for three months. Cadavers were frequently preserved in spirits, Anatomists used the same bodies over and over again. They were that valuable. Dr. Knox treasured Mary Patterson as a prize, and then he exploited her. He displayed her body numerous times, depending on the subject of the lecture. The students were all men, and they crowded around the table in awe. Knox's classes trained surgeons and saved lives. Of course I admire that. But what's most troubling to me was the anatomist's adoration for this cadaver. Mary Patterson, the orphaned teenage girl, was now gone. 
Knox didn't think about her life, who she was, and how her family might feel. And sometimes that's the case even for modern-day anatomy professors. At most schools, young students are constantly reminded that cadavers are people. They're not objects, but they're often referred to as material. And it would be easy for any student to see them as body parts. Professor of anatomy Tom Gillingwater at the University of Edinburgh says that securing body donors is sensitive. The university doesn't proactively recruit. Gillingwater says that would be unethical. But body donation is not for everyone, and they simply couldn't teach anatomy without them. Luckily, they have a consistent number of donors, but he says they could always use more cadavers. We have incredible demands on the material we have. We try and use every single donor to the best of our capability. So, you know, they will be using their gift to teach undergraduate students who will go on to become the next generation of doctors. They will be teaching consultant surgeons who are already at the top of their game but want to improve, want to develop new techniques that are going to improve and benefit human health. Remember, we're kind of gradually building this up there. So you've seen these a few times now, haven't you? We've been looking at the, the cross-section of the spinal cord. Dr. Gillingwater says they also use cadavers to teach scientists who want to understand the human body and health and disease. They're developing the next generation of therapies and treatments. He says that the University of Edinburgh is very, very fortunate, unlike other schools. So we have on file over 3,000 people who have at least said they formally wish to leave their body to us. Numbers vary, but we could receive somewhere between 30 and 60 bodies a year into the department for, for using. If we had 100 bodies a year, would we use them? Yes, we would. And today, the University of Edinburgh seems to have earned the trust of many people, unlike in the 1800s. There's so much trust that they're willing to donate their bodies despite the gruesome tales that have plagued medical schools for centuries. What are the fears? What are the myths? Goodness, where do you start? I mean, you hear all sorts of stories, don't you? you, you and, and a lot of them are simply urban myths. They're kind of stories you hear from medical schools of, oh, you know, there was a medical student that managed to take a foot out of the class. and So there's a kind of the fear of, oh, there'll be pranks played on the bodies or there'll be something like that. I've written a lot about crime scenes in my books, specifically about the image of a female victim dead and sprawled out in her home while countless police officers peer down at her body. Her body stays there for hours as detectives and reporters mill around her. Photographers take pictures of her. She's exposed and she's vulnerable. And no woman would want to be remembered like that. And those types of scenes will likely always be in my books, because true crime stories often feature a man killing a woman. That type of murder is absolutely a tragedy. But for anatomy professors, a body in the right hands is a gift, a privilege to help educate. Tom Gillingwater says he absolutely understands why many potential donors have such an internal struggle. I think the problem is, is the misconceptions and the, the natural tendency to see perhaps the worst possibilities or to assume the worst is what will happen in society. You know, where's my relative being sent to or what's happening or these kind of things. Religion is also a factor, particularly with Catholics considering body donation. In Birkenhair's time, the Catholic Church, along with other religious organizations, railed against anatomists. But virtually all religions have reversed that edict in the past 200 years. Anthony Horan is the director of the Catholic Parliamentary Office in Scotland. 
He represents the church in Britain's swiftly changing political landscape. Ideally, you know, for, for example, when you die, that you're buried rather than cremated. And that's the, we've heard that recently, in fact, from Pope Francis um, and from the church. It doesn't necessarily mean that if someone is cremated or if someone's body is donated uh, in some way to, to research or whatever, that that body is lost because we trust, of course, in, the, in God and uh, he's all-powerful. Gillingwater says that certain worldwide exhibitions actually reduce body donations, like one that features cadavers in various positions, or a TV show in Britain that features a live dissection. Those things, he says, don't help. I still think that death, the subject of death, the subject of the human body, mortality perhaps, is taboo. It's not openly discussed. It's in my family. Even though I'm the professor of anatomy and deal with these kind of issues day and day out, it's not something we ever would sit down openly and discuss. And because of that, Dr. Gillingwater says he gives potential donors space to make their own decisions. The subject of death can be taboo in certain cultures. It was less so in the 1800s because people died so frequently and so early in life. There's still some people who who believe that the body has to be whole when it's buried um, or cremated or whatever. I mean, you only have to look at organ donation because not everybody signs up to organ donation. Why not? So there's obviously something going on in people's heads. Historian Owen Dudley Edwards says that many families struggle with the idea that a loved one might donate their body to research. Sir Walter Scott summed it up very well when he said after his wife died that he would have himself been perfectly happy to have his own body given to the doctors for research, but he wouldn't like the thought of them pawing over the body of his wife. Now, many people felt like that about it. By the late spring of 1828, Burke and Hare had created quite an enterprise. They had devised a foolproof method of murder. Not even the brightest investigator would be able to prove it. They had established a system with the porter and the assistants and Dr. Knox at the laboratory. Burke and Hare knew their parts in this scheme. They had killed five people so far, but neither guessed that there would be trouble ahead. And neither did Dr. Knox. And it all started with a boy. Author George Orwell once said, if you want to keep a secret, you must also hide it from yourself. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. The old man nodded eagerly at the younger man. He could feel himself being led along the street. High Street was crowded that June, but he had been promised plenty of whiskey, which was waiting for him inside a boarding house just nearby in Tanner's Close. The old man was frail, but he managed to keep up. Suddenly, the younger man seemed startled. An old Irish woman with her arm around a 10-year-old boy was asking him questions. She was teary-eyed. She and her grandson had wandered by foot almost 50 miles from Glasgow to Edinburgh. They had been sleeping at night by the roads or in the fields. 
And now she was searching Old Town everywhere for friends who could help them. Edinburgh was a small city, so she hoped that the young man could help her and her grandson. The old man looked down with his dull eyes. The boy was deaf and mute. He felt his hand drop by his side. The offer of loads of whiskey was quickly rescinded. The old man had been cast away for a far bigger prize. The young man had his arms around the old woman and the boy now. And just like that, they disappeared down a shadowy close. William Burke understood basic math. Two victims were certainly better than one. He promised the old woman and her grandson that he could indeed find her friends. They were all Irish after all. Why not? She could come in for a dram of whiskey while he searched Westport. The old woman passed out on the bed behind a closed door in a room in the back of the boarding house. Hair suddenly appeared and he stood over her. He placed his hands over her mouth and nose as Burke laid on her chest. Soon she was dead. Each of their murders from then on seemed to follow the same pattern. It was simple and it took just a few minutes once the victims were drunk and unconscious. They couldn't breathe. They began to convulse. Their stomachs made a rumbling noise. They might have cried. Burke and Hare would then leave them to die alone, sometimes while they were still gasping for breath. When the men would return, the victims were always dead. Often their bodies were in a different position as they struggled to stay alive. It was a horrendous way to die. Burke and Hare stripped the grandmother's body, then covered her with a bed tick filled with hay. Her grandson was in another room with Margaret Hare and Nellie McDougall being comforted. Maybe. I'm not certain that either of these women had any real maternal instincts. But they did keep the boy quiet until the next morning. He was restless and making noises that clearly indicated he needed to see his grandmother. Burke and Hare talked about what to do next. They discussed releasing him on High Street to sort out his own destiny. Remember, he was mute. It was a big problem. They couldn't carry a boy and his grandmother to the doctor at the same time. Could they? The men couldn't agree, and rather than argue, Hare left to find a tea chest for the grandmother's body. Now here's the hard part for me. Burke walked into the other room and looked over at the boy. He lifted him and carried him into another room. Soon he was dead, burked, murdered by suffocation. Burke laid his body alongside the body of his grandmother. But later, rumors would suggest that he did something even more ghastly. And he's a big point of controversy amongst Burke and Hare researchers because there's some claim that they murdered him by breaking his back just over his knee, which I, I suspect is probably physically impossible. But anyway, Burke's argument was, why would they do that when they've got a perfectly good method of killing people? But the boy wasn't unconscious or physically disabled, so it wasn't quite as simple as smothering an old woman. Regardless of the method, Burke and Hare now needed to deliver the bodies to Dr. Knox. The old woman and the boy wouldn't fit together in their normal tea chest, so Hare carried in an old herring barrel. The two bodies were crammed in there and then hauled out the back to Hare's stable. The barrel was incredibly heavy, too heavy for the men to carry themselves. Hare prepared his horse and cart, hauled the barrel on top, and the men raced towards Surgeon Square. Okay, raced might be an exaggeration. 
Hare's battered old horse moved slowly up and down the hills of Edinburgh until it just stopped. It refused to move, despite the litany of curses from both men. Hare lashed it over and over, but it was no use. Burke's face turned red. His heart pounded because a crowd had gathered around the horse and cart, and people eyed that barrel. Burke panicked and trembled. Hare continued to beat the horse. Burke prayed, and then a man asked if they needed a hand. He was a laborer with a large wheelbarrow. Quickly, they loaded up the barrel, and off they went to Dr. Knox's laboratory, with Burke fretting the entire way. When they arrived, Burke wrapped both arms around the barrel and laid it on the floor of the dissecting room. They pried open the lid, and Dr. Knox's medical assistants seemed irritated. When Burke and Hare had jammed the bodies into the barrel, they had not yet stiffened. That was not the case now. Rigor mortis had fully set in, and it was nearly impossible to untangle them. When they were finally transferred to the exam table, Burke and Hare received 16 pounds. That was an excellent wage, but William Burke was sullen, even more than usual. He was shaken by the boy's murder. He described the young victim's wistful eyes, his piteous expression as he was killing him. It tortured Burke So I don't ever say that I feel sorry for William Burke, but sometimes I do. What did this do to him? He started having to drink a large amount of whiskey before he could sleep at night, and he always slept with the light on. That killing of the child really sort of pushed him over the edge, as it were. Burke often relied on whiskey to alleviate his guilt. Hare seemed to be able to murder without it. Do you think they took any pleasure in this besides just monetary pleasure? There is the argument that Burke did it for money. Hair, maybe not so much. Maybe he was into the pleasure side of it. But Burke was a businessman. But both Burke and Hare needed money. And at this point, they'd do anything to get it. Margaret Hare and Nellie McDougall were expensive women to keep. They enjoyed fine clothing, very fine clothing. When they ran low on money, they wore cheaper outfits. But after a murder, the women donned ensembles fit for Paris. At least they thought so. Burke and Hare also dressed nicely when they weren't working on the canal or in the stables. The men had sizable expenses, particularly their daily whiskey and porter bill, and it was clear to everyone around them that they had money. Except right now, they didn't. So this was the time for another murder. Burke pushed aside all images of the deaf, mute boy and focused on finding another victim. Early one morning, Burke saw a pair of policemen dragging a drunk woman toward the police station in Westport. He watched as they wrestled with her. Burke had found two policemen fighting with a very drunken woman, and she seemed to have been winning. They seemed exhausted and frustrated as Burke strolled over. He said to them, let the woman go to her lodgings. The constables replied that they were happy to be done with her, but she just didn't seem sober enough to direct them to her home, even if she did have one. Burke persuaded them to leave the woman with him and said, oh, but that he would take her to a place where she'd be looked after. She'd be all right. She wouldn't give the police any more trouble. She didn't. So I know it probably seems odd that two police officers would turn over a drunk woman to some guy on the street. But historian Owen Dudley Edwards says there's a good reason for that. 
Burke seems to have been quite a diplomat and quite an artist. In fact, was respected and admired as a speaker in preaching, actually, various forms of Christianity. He had a way with him with words, although Irish was probably his first language, not English. I think this is the first time I've ever heard of a serial killer being compared to a diplomat. And also, the Scottish police in Edinburgh had a delicate relationship with the Irish in Old Town. The immigrants were strong and violent, and they banded together. It was smart for local constables to stay on their good side. And Burke was generally well-behaved, at least for an Irishman in Westport at the time. So for all sorts of reasons, the police didn't want to be pursuing Burke too closely. He was uh, an immigrant who was friendly with the police, an Irish immigrant, an Irish Catholic friendly with the police. There weren't many who were. Shortly after the drunken woman arrived at Hare's Lodge, she was murdered. And then she was loaded into a tea chest and taken down to Dr. Knox's, where she was sold for 10 pounds. There were all sorts of jobs for people in 1820s Edinburgh, and most in Old Town were really horrible. But an old lady named Effie seemed to actually enjoy hers. She was what the locals called a cinder woman, someone who searched through ashes after fires to find cinders and other valuable items to sell. Effie would dig through ash pits and cinder heaps for hours, and occasionally she would find small pieces of leather that perhaps a cobbler might be interested in buying. William Burke knew Effie quite well. She was in the habit of collecting leather scraps that he could use for the shoes that he was mending. And one day, Effie appeared inside Hare's stables behind the boarding house. Hare had allowed Burke to operate his cobbler business there. And that was something interesting about Burke and Hare. They both worked at real, honest jobs. Burke was a cobbler, and Hare worked on boats on the canal. William Hare had commenced employment in Edinburgh at the Edinburgh end of the canal. Hare was digging there. He was digging as one of a group. Burke offered Effie a drink, which might have been innocent. They did know each other. Soon William Hare appeared, and the tone changed. Effie was given more whiskey, and soon she grew sleepy. Burke offered a pallet of straw in the corner of the stables. Soon she was asleep, and then dead. Her body fetched Burke and Hare 10 pounds from Dr. Knox's assistance. Meanwhile, Dr. Knox's family continued to grow. He had six kids now. He seemed to be a good father, but his relationship with his wife, Mary Russell, was difficult. He married below what people perceived to be his station. Um, so he didn't have much of a social life because he kind of kept his wife hidden away, as it were, because people didn't think she was of the right status. Most colleagues thought Knox was actually a bachelor because his family was so well hidden. Mary and their children lived in a nice area of the city, but it was far away from Surgeon Square. His official residence in Newtown was a place he shared with his two sisters. Knox had growing financial pressures as he struggled to thrive in haughty Edinburgh society. And he said as much in a letter to a family member, one of the many people he was supporting. You cannot think what pleasure I have in making you all comfortable. I do believe that were it not for this pleasure, I would not take the trouble to take another meal. For I am tired of the world. It is humbug and commonplace. Why was he so despised by the other people who worked with him? I get the impression that he wasn't a particularly 
nice person. He had a very high opinion of himself. It's so strange, though, because he's so sweet when he talks to his daughter. But I mean, that's also what we talk about in this kind of story is the duality of people's personalities. And his students loved him, right? They absolutely think the sun shines out of him. He was a really great teacher. Equally, by all accounts, a very high opinion of himself, um, which might well have been justified. So I think it's probably his personality. I mean, everybody's got two sides to their personality, but I think having such a reputation as such a teacher, you can't help. That must have fed his idea that he was the best. Robert Knox was born in 1791 in Edinburgh. He came from a middle-class family, the youngest of five boys and eight girls. His father was a mathematician and a teacher of natural philosophy at a nearby hospital. At home, Knox was particularly attached to his brother Frederick. They were caring and affectionate toward each other. But in school, Knox was a menace. He had a reputation as a bully who humiliated his foes both mentally and physically. He was also consistently at the top of his class. Knox was accepted into medical school at the University of Edinburgh thanks to the man who would become one of his main professional rivals. He actually failed his first attempt to become a doctor. He failed on anatomy because of the teaching of um, Munro Tertius um, here. He then went off and did anatomy with John Barclay, who had a private anatomy school. Under Dr. Barclay, Knox thrived, and he learned the importance of dynamic lecturing and the value of a cadaver. He graduated in 1814 and then joined the army the following year. Knox was sent to Brussels, Belgium, during the Battle of Waterloo, where he tended to the wounded. That was where he honed his surgical skills. When the Battle of Waterloo took place, for example, doctors went down to the battlefield for weeks afterwards to find out what they could about corpses which were to be picked up there. Among the doctors who did that was Dr. Robert Knox. Two years later, he was sent to South Africa. He studied zoology there, but he found the work to be light, almost like holidaying in an undesirable destination. When Knox was in Africa, he wrote long, emotional letters to his brother Frederick, his closest friend. How happy am I, and yet how wretched, delighted to hear of your health and prosperity, yet miserable at the thoughts of the wide-extended ocean which rolls between us. I have been necessitated to resign the pen for the gun, to acquire the art of managing the reins of my horse whilst traveling on the parched roads of Africa. After studying under some of the world's best anatomists in Paris, Knox returned to Edinburgh where he began to write well-received research papers. He was elected fellow of the Royal College of Surgeons in Edinburgh, which gained him enormous respect. He teamed up with his old professor, John Barclay, to eventually take over the private anatomy school. In short order, Robert Knox quickly became the most sought-after anatomy professor in Edinburgh. But he certainly had enemies. One collection of crooks uh, had got hold of a body and uh, sold it to Liston, who was one of Knox's rivals, whom he often insulted in his lectures, Liston didn't pay the crooks enough, so they stole the body and resold it to Knox, who, of course, never asked any questions. Uh, You didn't ask any questions. By 1828, his classes were thriving. His family was out of the public eye, and perhaps he might earn that coveted faculty position at the University of Edinburgh. 
Robert Knox seemed to have his entire future sorted out. And Birkenhair seemed to have an unending supply of impressive bodies. Birkenhair cut out the middleman. No nasty business of grave mold or anything like that adhering to the corpse. No having to deal with bits of coffins or anything of that nature. No dealing indeed with dangerous watch and ward committees spying for grave robbers. Oh no, Birkenhair did the thing cleanly. While the anatomist and his assistants were careful to never note where the bodies came from, the doctor's research betrayed him. Knox's notes about the sex and condition of his corpses coincided with the dates of the murders. The phrase, taken from a healthy-looking female, was used quite a lot in the spring of 1828. When Robert Knox had dissected Mary Patterson's body before a packed anatomy class three months after her death, he seemed pleased. But her marvelous body was cursed. She soon became the one Birkenhair murder victim that everyone would remember. The story was told and retold of a young girl strikingly beautiful and promiscuous, betrayed by her own troubled life at the hands of callous murderers, only to be recognized by her medical student lovers as she lay upon the dissection table. Of course, we know this was just lore, but it didn't matter. Mary Patterson was branded a girl about town, a woman whose reputation in death was certainly more interesting than her real life. It's a case of whether you think she was a prostitute and the doctors recognized her because they make frequent use of prostitutes, or whether she was just uh, an unfortunate girl and, her, as her friend says, she wasn't a prostitute, and she was recognized by the doctors because she'd just been in hospital. I mean, you have to decide which is the more likely. But Birkenhair had become careless. They broke an unspoken rule, avoid killing people who would be missed. It was Burke's horrible mistake. Within months, Mary's friend Janet Brown would become one of our local heroes. When Mary went missing, Janet Brown started harassing anyone within earshot. She harangued police and interrogated Birkenhair. She wouldn't stop until someone finally listened. But by then it was too late. Nellie McDougall and Margaret Hare really despised each other. There's no doubt about that. They were both mean, insecure, and drunk, so dust-ups between the two arrived daily. And frankly, William Burke and William Hare didn't care for one another either. They seemed to know that they would turn on each other if the police arrived one day. The women were jealous, the men were suspicious, and the neighbors seemed oblivious. Burke wondered to himself when this all might end. It had to end. He couldn't sleep at night. The image of the boy he killed would never vanish. He needed a rest. Every year, Burke and Nellie took a holiday trip to Bannockburn to celebrate a battle where the Scottish defeated the English in the 14th century. They would also visit Nellie's father, who lived nearby in Falkirk. Margaret Hare seemed pleased that they were leaving, which seemed odd to Nellie because she was normally so unpleasant. William Hare pulled Burke aside for a frank conversation. Maybe they should consider killing Burke's wife because she's Scottish and the rest of them are Irish. And maybe they shouldn't be trusting somebody who isn't Irish. Burke was dumbfounded. Margaret wanted him to murder his own wife. Hare even offered a plan. 
they would say that something happened to Nellie in Bannockburn. They could just say that uh, Nellie became ill while she was there and Burke returned on his own and nobody would really ask any questions. Obviously, Burke thinks this is just completely out of order. Hare argued that they needed the money. Burke had noticed that the couple had pawned some things. Burke walked away angry and suspicious. And now Nellie's life might be in danger. He was worried that Helen McDougall, not being an Irish Catholic, uh, might be murdered by the Hares, that she was vulnerable. William Hare looked at Margaret. They needed more money. And there was just one thing to do. But Burke and Hare had a very important rule. Don't kill on your own. We're partners, they said. Not for too much longer. On the next episode of Tenfold More Wicked. But this is where Burke and Hare went wrong. He said that at this point, he felt they could just, they could do anything. If they could take fit 21-year-olds off the street, there was no way anyone was ever going to stop them. And he seems to have been the only corpse who had known that he was about to be murdered. If you love historical true crime, be sure to order my book, American Sherlock. It's about a real-life Sherlock Holmes who solved some of the most gruesome murders in the 1920s. The paperback arrives on February 16th, but it's available for pre-order now. This has been an Exactly Right and Tenfold More Media production. Producers Jason Whaling and Laura Sobel. Sound designer Eric Friend. Composer Curtis Heath. Artwork Nick Toga. Executive producers Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgariff, and Danielle Kramer. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Tenfold More Wicked and on Twitter at Tenfold More. If you're an advertiser interested in advertising on our show, go to midroll.com slash ads. And if you know of a historical crime that could use some attention, email us at info at tenfoldmorewicked.com. So please listen, subscribe, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.